Well, today, uh, I conclude, or maybe I won't conclude, I might need one more week, our, our Lord's Supper service, uh, on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and of course, the filling of the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, is the key to a believer being empowered to execute God's plan and to live a life pleasing to God. Without the filling of the Holy Spirit, that is impossible. Now, last Sunday, uh, we focused on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, to answer the question, what is the filling of the Holy Spirit? Uh, Ephesians 5.18 reads, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's just briefly review the five truths we learned last Sunday about the filling of the Holy Spirit. First, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not an option to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. The verb, be filled, in Ephesians 5.18, is in the imperative mood, and it is plural. Therefore, it is a command to be obeyed by all Christians. Second, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not the coming of the Spirit into my life, but the controlling of the Spirit from within my life. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in the heart of a believer when? At conversion, simultaneous with conversion. We looked at this last week. It's crystal clear in the Scriptures. Therefore, when we come to the filling of the Holy Spirit, the issue is not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. The issue is the Holy Spirit getting more of you under His control. So that is what the filling of the Holy Spirit is about, being controlled by the Spirit of God. And this is why Ephesians 5.18 contrasts the filling of the Holy Spirit with being drunk with wine. Instead of coming under the influence of alcohol or any other substance, you are to continually be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Third, we saw the filling of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with getting charismatic gifts, but it has everything to do with growing in Christ-like character. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reproduce Christ's life in you for the benefit of others. That's His primary ministry. That is what the filling of the Holy Spirit produces. Therefore, the real test of the filling of the Holy Spirit is not do I speak in tongues, but am I becoming more like Jesus Christ? Fourth, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not an experience to be sought, but a relationship to be maintained. The Holy Spirit is a person who lives in you with you. Therefore, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is simply to maintain a healthy relationship with the Holy Spirit by not grieving Him with sin or quenching Him by resisting His control of your life, but by 
following the Spirit's leading in every part of your life. And then the fifth and the final truth that we saw last Sunday was the filling of the Holy Spirit is not an emotion to thrill the saved, but it is an empowerment to reach the lost. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to bring the church and every Christian in harmony with the will of the Father and the work of the Son so that we live only for what God and Christ live for, which is the glory of God in the salvation of the lost. Now today, we're going to shift our attention to how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we hopefully understand what is the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's all about the Holy Spirit controlling my life. Well, how can I know in reality uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit and come under the Holy Spirit's uh, control? Now, the first condition should be fairly obvious. I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes. And uh, so look at that first point. If the filling of the Holy Spirit is all about getting under uh, the Spirit's control, then obviously I must, what, surrender to Jesus. That's where we have to begin, surrender to Jesus, where Jesus conquers the Spirit controls. So this is the first condition that must be met to know the filling of the Holy Spirit. I must surrender to Jesus. Where Jesus conquers, the Spirit controls. So what does it mean biblically to surrender to Jesus? Well, it means first to sacrifice all to Christ. That's the next point there in your notes. To sacrifice all to Christ. Romans 12 verse 1. I urge you therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God. In other words, he's making an appeal. He's saying, when you look at what Jesus did for you on that cross and through his resurrection, he says, therefore, you're to present your what? Bodies. And you present them as what? A living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You are to present your life to Christ as a living sacrifice in response to the sacrifice he made for you on the cross. The issue is relinquishing control of your life to follow him. Now this passage, this next passage is not found in your notes, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 reads, and this really sums it up, for the love of Christ controls us. See, we're back to this issue of control. What is controlling your life? And the Paul says, well, Paul says, it's the love of Christ that controls us, having concluded this, that one, Jesus, died for all. And he died for all. Why? That they should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. To surrender to Jesus also means I must submit to Christ's authority. The next point there in your sermon notes. I must surrender to Christ's authority or submit to Christ's authority. I must submit to Christ's authority. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve what? Two masters. No one can serve two masters. The word serve is doulos in the Greek. 
and it means to be a slave. The word masters is kurios, which literally means your sovereign Lord or the one who has absolute ownership and authority over your life. And the point Jesus is making is that it is absolutely impossible for a slave to be the property of two owners. It's impossible. A slave is owned, controlled by, and obligated to one master. In the same way, Jesus Christ is to be the undisputed master of your life. Romans 6, verse 16 reads, Don't you realize, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? What a verse. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? Notice it's a choice. So whose slave are you? The answer, the one to whose authority you submit to. You are forced to make a choice. You can no more serve two masters at the same time than you can walk in two directions at the same time. To say yes to the Lordship of Christ necessitates saying no to self, right? To follow Him. To surrender to Jesus is to submit to His authority. To surrender to Jesus also means you are to serve Christ's agenda. Again, the next point in your notes, to serve Christ's agenda. Sacrifice all to Christ, submit to His authority, and now serve Christ's agenda. And again, the progression of all of these are, are very logical. If I'm truly submitted to Christ's authority, if that's true in my life, I will express that submission by serving His agenda. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. His points are obvious. Who establishes the agenda to be followed in the classroom? The pupil or the teacher? Well, hopefully the teacher. Who establishes the work to be completed by the slave? The slave or the master? Again, the master. The issue is relinquishing control of your life to Christ. And notice, what is the goal of it all? What is the objective of it all? For you to become like your teacher. To become like your master, conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Again, for the benefit of others. For the benefit of others. So to surrender to Jesus means to sacrifice all to Christ, to submit to his authority, serve his agenda, and then notice one last point here, to seek Christ's approval. If I surrender to Jesus... My life is going to all be about seeking His approval. Look what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1.10. Summed it up very well. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but God. If pleasing people were my goal, 
I would not be Christ's servant. Again, you're back to that choice. Who am I going to choose to follow? See, listen, think about this. The desire to gain the approval of others, that desire to gain their approval will pressure you to conform to their values, to their attitudes, and their way of living. Whoever you desire to please most is the controlling influence in your life. And Jesus alone is worthy of that position. The first condition you must, be, you must meet to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to surrender to Jesus. Where Jesus conquers, the Spirit controls. Look at the second condition there in your sermon notes. I must maintain a clear conscience by confessing all sin to God. Where the blood cleanses, the Spirit fills. I must maintain a clear conscience by confessing all sin to God. Where the blood cleanses, the Spirit fills. Look at the next two verses. Paul wrote in Acts 24, verse 16, I do my utmost to live my whole life with a clear conscience before God and man. But look at the other side of the coin, a tragic side. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. This matter of a clear conscience is so very, very important to your relationship with God and especially to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you maintain a clear conscience? Look at this with me. First, you have to be honest. That's where it begins. You have to be honest. Look at Psalm 32, verses 2 and 5. This was a psalm of David that he wrote after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, after murdering her husband Uriah to attempt to cover up his adultery. And when God finally broke him and he came to a place of confession and forsaking and repentance, he wrote this, Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Is your life being lived in complete honesty before God? Gaining a clear conscience begins when you stop trying to hide your guilt. When you take the mask off, you get real, you get transparent, to be honest with God. But not only be honest, you have to be specific. That's the next point. You have to be honest and you have to be specific. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, notice sins, plural, he's being very specific. He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
generality, generality is the language of pride. God wants us to be specific because only by being specific about our sin do we develop godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance. There is a huge difference between, Lord, forgive me of all my sins, and, Lord, forgive me for yelling at the kids this morning. Forgive me for not treating my wife with love and respect. Forgive me for lying to my boss. Forgive me for cheating on that test, for cheating on my taxes. Forgive me for watching that TV program or that movie or going to that website. Forgive me for slandering or gossiping concerning that person. Forgive me for my lack of love, my service to Christ. When was the last time that you got that specific? about your sin. But to know a clear conscience requires honesty, requires being specific, and then notice the next point, to be continual. To be continual. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. It's like the psalmist just comes right into the glorious light of God that exposes and reveals all things as they are. And folks, let's be honest about something right here. My greatest enemy is Andy Merritt. And your greatest problem is yourself. And the greatest problem with ourselves is self-deception. We need to see ourselves as God sees us and to see God as He truly is and as we walk in the light as He is in the light, the blood of Jesus, what? Cleanses us from all sin. But He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. So how often should you come to Jesus to confess your sin? As often as you sin. (laughs) Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, which is now called Crew, uh, called this uh, spiritual breathing. You exhale the sin through confession to God as you become honest, as you become specific, and then you what? Inhale the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Well, how often do you need to breathe? So, be honest, be specific, be continual, and then notice that last point under maintaining a clear conscience. Be complete. Be complete. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 18 from the Amplified Version. I love how this reads. He says, we are convinced that we have a good, clear conscience, that we want to walk uprightly and live a noble life, acting honorably and in complete honesty in all things. Complete honesty in all things. 
There is a beautiful old gospel song that I love to hear my wife sing, although I have not heard her sing this in a long time. And it's simply called Nothing Between. Nothing Between My Soul and the Savior, so that His blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of His favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. Can you say this morning that there is absolutely nothing between you and the Savior? There's nothing that you haven't gotten honest about, been specific about in the confession of your sin before Him. So to be filled with the Spirit, you must first be surrendered to Jesus, where Jesus conquers, the Spirit controls. Second, you must maintain a clear conscience by confessing all sin to God, where the blood cleanses, the Spirit fills. And then third, the third condition you must meet is to obey God's Word. To obey God's Word. Where there is obedience, the Spirit empowers. Ephesians 5.18 reads, be filled with the Spirit. How? The answer is Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That word dwell means be at home in your life. To be able to settle down, take root. That you become a living epistle of God's truth. Now listen very, very carefully right here. Because this is a, this is a, a, a wonderful point. And an important point, after being commanded to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, we are then, in in the next verses, in verses 19 through 21, we're given the evidences of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So he says, be filled with the Spirit. And then in verses 19 through 21, he, he gives the evidences. What would it look like if a person is filled with the Spirit? What will be the fruit in his life? And he fundamentally mentions three things. He says that individual will be singing from his heart to the Lord. Talks about making a melody in his heart to the Lord. We're talking about this passionate worship of God. Focusing on who he is, what he's done, being absorbed, lost in that. To be found in his presence. Second, he talks about giving thanks to God for all things. The absence of a grumbling, murmuring, critical spirit. But the recognition... That He is my sovereign Lord. That He is my authority. That He won't let anything touch my life unless He'll use it for my good and His greater glory to shape me and to mold me and fashion me according to His will. So we receive all things in humility, giving thanks to Him. Although we may be perplexed at times, we know He's a God of love and we can trust Him. And then third, being subject to one another. That we live as servants. That we live as Christ did, who did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarded others more important than himself, as he laid down his life as a ransom for many. And then it's fascinating when you go to the Colossians 3 passage, after being commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in verse 16, he then gives the evidences. Well, what's the fruit of that? And guess what? They're parallel passages. 
you see the identical evidences. Singing in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks to God in all things. And then being subject to one another. Serving one another. Impacting interpersonal relationships in the home and in the family and every other place. Now here's the fascinating thing, and don't miss this. We, we, we talked about this last Sunday. You go back to Ephesians 5.18, the verb be filled is in the passive voice. Do you remember what we said the passive voice means? It means I don't feel myself. It is who that fills me. God must fill me, control me by the Holy Spirit. But when you go to Colossians 3.16, that verb, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, is in the active voice, which means that is my responsibility. God says, your responsibility is to get in my word with a submissive, surrendered attitude that we talked about, relinquishing control, saying no to self, to follow Jesus. And then as I come to this word in an attitude of surrender, with a submissive attitude, To receive it, to apply, not to debate it, not to argue it, but to commit to following it. God says, when you come with that attitude, and when you begin to make that step of faith to obey, my power will be released in and through your life, empowering you, controlling you, using you in a marvelous way. Now we come to the fourth and final condition that must be met for a believer to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there is no way that I'm going to finish this morning. But I want to at least introduce this point and then we'll conclude. And then in that Lord's Supper service, the first Sunday in February, I will return to this and we'll focus just on this point. Because folks, hear me now. This fourth point, this fourth condition that must be met is the most neglected teaching on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And sadly, it's the most important. Not only the most neglected, but the most important. And I believe you'll be able to see why. And that fourth condition is I must yield to brokenness. I must yield to brokenness. Where there is brokenness, the Spirit is released. Now just skip over 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 for a moment. We'll come back to that whether today or in two weeks. But look at the definition. Let me just introduce you. This may be a new concept to many of you. But it's throughout the Scripture. And you'll never know the filling of the Holy Spirit without understanding this truth, this principle, and yielding to it. Here's the definition, or at least the definition I would use. Brokenness is the lifelong process. And every word, every phrase of this definition is very important. It's one of those that you just need to walk through very slowly, very deliberately. Brokenness is the lifelong long process of God using adversity, God using adversity to shatter all self-will and self-reliance in order to create 
absolute submission and reliance on God as a channel through which the Holy Spirit is released in the believer's life to reproduce Christ's character for the benefit of others. Now, here's my point. Listen carefully. We said the conditions to being filled with the Holy Spirit are what? Total surrender to Jesus. Maintaining a clear conscience. Being totally honest, transparent. And cooperating with Him in obedience. Now, if you haven't figured this out yet in your life, and I'm sure you have, that doesn't come easy to us. We may be saved, but we're still sinners. Praise God, we're sinners saved by grace. And praise God, the moment you were converted, God planted that Holy Spirit within you, but He planted that Holy Spirit inside a person who is very stubborn, who is very selfish. And I'm talking about myself. We do not want to relinquish control. We want to maintain control. We don't want to become totally honest about ourselves before God and others. We want to wear our mask. We find it easier to project an image about ourselves than to deal what really is there on the inside. And we buckle at obedience. We push back. We don't, in our own strength, just naturally give God quick obedience without delay as an act of love, out of delight, in pure worship for Him and who He is, what He did. Reality for every believer is, yes, you were converted, and yes, that conversion brought change, and yes, you love God, but that devotion to God is still mixed with a lot of impurity. And that's why there's the whole issue of growth in the Christian life. Sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen at the moment of conversion. It is a lifelong process. Let me give you an example in the physical world. and We'll close with this. It might help you grasp it a little, little bit better. Uh, Electricity, think about it, electricity flows through wires. Now, I'm not an electrician, and an electrician, someone like Don Breeden, could be much more specific here, but I'll just put it on layman, in layman's terms. Electricity flows through wires, but how freely it flows is in direct proportion to the amount of resistance the wire offers. The greater the wire's resistance, the more it hinders the flow of electrical power. There are technical terms for this, but that's just a good layman's way of saying it. Now, if we picture ourselves as the wire and the power of the Holy Spirit as the electricity, we understand that God's power flows best through wires with the least resistance. 
wires who are totally surrendered to Jesus in absolute abandonment. Wires that are totally honest, transparent, open. And wires that cooperate in harmony with God's will. Therefore, the goal of brokenness is to reduce a believer's resistance to the flow of God's Spirit through his or her life. To break down our self-will, our self-reliance, to break our pride in our selfishness. God must break us to use us. And see what happens because we do not understand this principle. When adversity comes, which God brings as a loving tool to bring me to deeper depths of... And and see, in all these areas, you can't say that, oh, I've arrived finally at surrender to Jesus. Or I've arrived at total transparency. Or I've arrived at total obedience. It's a lifelong process. It's always deeper depths of surrender. Always deeper depths of honesty and openness and trans. Deeper depths of obedience out of love and worship. So it's a lifelong process. So what? So we naturally resist those things because we're still sinners. We're struggling. So God brings adversity as our friend. To break down that resistance. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. Because he's thinking of your good, what is best for you. Anything that draws you near to God is good for you. Anything that creates a greater dependence upon God, a greater determination to know God, a greater desperation, that is good for you. And then I'll close with this. Go back to the 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 9. We'll give the one example and then we'll close. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul expressed it very, very well. He says, now let me give you the context. And most of you know the context. Paul was given by God, the passage is very, very clear. He was, been, been, he was given by God a thorn in the flesh that he called a messenger from Satan. But God gave it to him. God gave him this thorn in the flesh that he identified as a messenger from Satan. And that word thorn in the Greek text literally means a stake that you would use to impale somebody. So this was very... Now, Paul doesn't identify what the thorn was. But it was something that was terrible. It was something that was painful. That brought him great anguish and sorrow and difficulty. And he begged God, the passage says, three times. God, take it away. God, move it. Remove it. Now that passage also says, don't miss this, why God gave it to him. Do you know what it says? you know the reason? To keep him from what? Pride. He says it right there in the passage. God gave me this to keep me from exalting myself, becoming puffed up and arrogant and prideful. 
God was breaking down the resistance in Paul's life so that he could freely know the flow of the Holy Spirit in his life to reproduce Jesus, flowing out of him to be a river to others, a river of Jesus to others. And now comes this verse, verse 9. Each time, this was God's response to Paul. He says, Paul, my grace is all you need. And let me just pause right there. You know, we flippantly say, Jesus is all I need. But let me tell you something, and this is just a reality. A person never learns in reality that Jesus is all he needs until Jesus is all he's got left. And that's what God was doing to Paul. He says, Paul, my grace is all you need. My power, don't miss this, works best in what? Weakness. Not your strength, Paul, but in weakness. Now, and here's Paul's response. So now, it totally changed Paul's perspective in life. Totally changed his perspective on adversity and persecution and insults and difficulty. He says, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. And then he goes on and says, when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, I celebrate persecution. I celebrate insults. I celebrate infirmity in my life. Because God is using it. To break down my stubbornness, my self-will, my self-reliance. To teach me to lean on Him and to trust on Him. And I have found He is sweet and He satisfies. And it enables me to be useful for God in His service. God can't use you until he breaks you. And again, there are different degrees of brokenness. The greater the brokenness, the greater the usefulness. And see, our difficulty, and let's be honest, we want the product, we want the end result, we just don't want the process that's required to get us there, right? So, when we come back in two weeks, I won't take time to really review, we'll just plunge right here. We'll just plunge right here and begin to look at what you see there, the principle, the purpose in the brokenness, or the process in the brokenness, the purpose, and then the potter, the one who's behind it all. And I'll just leave you with this. Praise God that the potter, the one who molds the clay, Those hands are nail-pierced hands. If there's one thing we never need doubt, it's God's love. We may not can trace God's hand, but we can trust God's heart. He knows what He's doing. Amen? As we enter our time of invitation... Let me just speak to believers for a moment. What this leads me to, and I hope it leads you to, you say, okay, God, I I see the, the condition is surrender and honesty and obedience. 
But God, it's obvious that apart from you breaking me, you'll never know my surrender, you'll never know full honesty, and you'll never know complete cooperation. So God, I yield to you. I yield to your sovereignty. I yield to your wisdom. Lord, right now I give you the freedom to do whatever is needed in my life. I give you the freedom to arrange my affairs, my circumstances, my relationships in the way that you deem best to break me of my self-will and self-reliance, to break down that resistance that I might know that flow, that filling of the Holy Spirit in and through me to be a river of Jesus to others. Because, folks, it's not about you. See, even in this matter of adversity, we think, oh, yeah, God's grace there, and it's all about me to know God's grace no, you're stopping up the dam there. Every adversity God takes you through, every pain is an open door for ministry. And you have not fulfilled or completed the process until you become a river of Jesus to others. Where you're able to minister to them that same grace that God ministered to you. It's a flow in you, through you, out to others. So it's all about Jesus, all about reaching a lost world, all about putting Him on display, letting Him be exalted, Him being magnified. So believer, that's all we can use, that word, yield. God, give me grace to stop resisting like I've been and just yield and not waste my sorrow, but learn from it the lessons you have for me. And then if you don't know Christ this morning, Jesus came to this world because he loves you. And you are a sinner. You're separated from God. And if you do not turn to Jesus, you're going to know eternal punishment in hell. But Jesus came to save you from that destiny. Jesus came to be able to take residence in your life like we talked about this morning and to control you and to lead you into His wonderful plan for your life, to use you for His honor and His glory and then for you to be able to enjoy an eternity with Him. And He built that bridge between man and God by sending Jesus into this world, the very Son of God, who eternally existed, He was sent to become a man, to die in your place for your sin, for your rebellion, for your unwillingness to relinquish control of your life to God. And He canceled out your sin debt. And He's offering you this morning the free gift of forgiveness through Him. So I would invite you, turn to Jesus. Turn from your sin, turn from your own life running it, and ask Him in to forgive you of your sins, to take control of your life, and then just yield each day to Him, knowing that He will complete the good work that He's begun in you, that you are His workmanship, He is the potter, you are the clay, and he is able to finish what he started. Amen. So stand as the invitation is extended.